are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome listeners, whether you're first time or whether you've been joining us for a while as we've been going through the book of Luke. Um, last week, uh, you know, if you were not able to listen to that podcast in which I was going to go over Luke chapter 22, uh, but as I read through it, I kind of shared a little bit of how God had just kind of broke me again um, afresh in going over the story of his son and his betrayal, his mocking, his, his being crucified, the Passover, and just how all that stuff should really kind of weigh our soul uh, or weigh on our soul to a point of where we can't read it um, with just this half-hearted, nonchalant attitude, or we shouldn't read it like that. But I think that oftentimes it gets to us like that, to where we we just read over. It's like, yeah, Jesus died on the cross. Yeah, Jesus was beaten for my sin. Yeah, you know, all, we talk about this stuff because we hear it so often. We sing about it in songs, and it loses its depth and its weight and the burden that it should put on us. And it was just kind of a, an, a, a fresh... Um, just uh, a fresh weight that God had given to me. And I just sat here and just stared out the window for five or ten minutes just contemplating um, what my forgiveness and my salvation cost. And I kind of urged you guys to do the same thing. We've got 71 verses to cover. So I'm going to go ahead and just get right into this um, in chapter 22 if you've got a Bible then I would encourage you to turn to that real quick. Um, and the first half of it, we're going to kind of breeze through that unless God you know, wants us to camp out a little bit on certain sections. But um, we're going to kind of breeze through that a little bit. I know that sounds a little bit contradictory to what I even just said, and, and I, I hope that it's not coming across that way. Um, I want to get to that last half. Um, because I don't want to break this up into two parts if I don't have to. And I want to get to that last half and, and really let that be where we camp out. Um, but if God has different um, plans, then we'll, we'll go with that. We'll see what it does, uh, what he does. So we're going to get right into this in verse 1. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. For they fear the people. So you see that there's this sense of jealousy. Um, I, I see a fear of the people, but I see that resulting from a jealousy of the people, uh, their adoration towards Christ. Um, but we also see a time frame that this is prior to the Passover. So they have not actually sat down and started the Passover meal. This is prior to that time. Um, and so it's kind of developing a timeline for us in this. But one thing I also want you to understand is, in the law, it talked about for those seven days prior to the Passover, um, 
the lamb that was to be slain was supposed to be brought into the house. It was supposed to be brought in from the flock, outside of the house, brought into the house, and actually treated like a family member. It was to be um, adored. It was to be taken care of. It was to be, you know, catered to, like oftentimes we do for pets, like dogs and cats. And, you know, it was to be taken care of like it was one of the family until that last day when it was to be slaughtered. And this is kind of a foreshadow of what's going on is Jesus is coming into the house. He's coming into Jerusalem. He's coming into his people. And he's going to be, by the majority, he's going to be kind of praised. He's coming in right on that donkey, right? And they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're waving the palm branches and they're bringing in this lamb. And they don't even realize what's going on. And they're bringing him in. But the chief priests, the leaders, the rulers, the ones who were against him, they were plotting on how they were going to be able to kill him, how to put him to death in such a way, not through stoning, because there was nothing that he was doing that was requiring that. But in their estimation and in their jealousy and in their um, hatred for him, they were wanting Caesar to be the one who was going to put him to death so they could humiliate him as an example of what happens when you come against their authority. So all these things are working behind the scenes. And he goes on in verse 3. And again, if you go and study in John 13, you're going to find the Passover in which in the beginning, before they partake of it, Judas was filled um, not with Satan, but with Satan's intent to betray him. And that's an important thing because it says in John 13 too, that Satan had filled his heart to betray him. He had not yet possessed him. That didn't happen until after Judas ate of the bread. After he ate of the bread, it says that Satan filled him. He possessed him, which I, I can't even imagine what his eyes would look like with somebody who's possessed by Satan himself. Not even just a demon, but Satan himself is what I get from the text. It says that Satan filled him. So, what I, you know, you can look in somebody's eyes and see when God fills somebody. In the same way, with the eyes being a lamp to the soul, when somebody's soul is filled and possessed by Satan, I can't imagine what his eyes look like. So understanding that when it says here in verse 3, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. This was prior to the Passover and as John 13, 2 gives us a timeline. Satan had put it into the heart of Judas, which is a different thing to betray him. It says, he goes on, who is one of the number of the 12. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Now I want you to see something, two things, all right? It's a, it's a twofold thing. One, the new covenant has not started yet, okay? Everything that's happening right now is still under the old covenant. Therefore, it could still be redeemed, all right? So understand that real quick, okay? That didn't start until Hebrews 9, as it says in there, that the contract or the covenant is not established until the death of the one who established it happens. So until Jesus died on that cross, the new covenant was not in effect. So everything you read in the gospel accounts is still under the old covenant. That's a very important concept to understand. Two, is some might ask, well, what's the difference between Judas and Peter? And I'm going to tell you a couple things that stand out to me. I'm not going to fully understand um, or be able to get you to understand all the nuances that are there. But here's one big one. Peter stumbled in his denying of Christ. Judas sought out the, the opportunity to betray him. He pursued it. 
Peter stumbled, Judas pursued the betrayal. And that's a distinction that's there. But all of that still falls under the old covenant. Okay? And that's a big thing because once Christ died, I believe that all those sins could still be wiped away, could still be washed away because they were under the old covenant. Um, but that's a whole other topic that would take a little while to get into and a lot of different things. One of the other things you see is that in the Old Testament, um, this betrayal that Judas was doing for 30 pieces of silver was the price of a slave. Um, and there's a lot of scripture that actually goes into this. It's, this is actually a prophecy. Um, that goes into it. But again, that would go into a whole different topic. So let's keep going. Verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread. On which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So this is a fulfillment of scripture. In which this day had now come. In which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Ooh, excuse me. Sorry. It's getting cloudy outside. It looks like there's rain. I guess it's starting to mess with my psyche on here. In verse 8, so Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Jesus was eating this Passover with them. It wasn't just the disciples who were partaking of this bread. Jesus ate of it too, which brings a whole concept into the Eucharist. If you're Catholic or know anything about Catholicism, um, that brings a whole new dynamic to the fact that if you believe that it really was Jesus' flesh and Jesus' blood, and it wasn't just a memorial or symbolic of what Christ had done for us, um, that means that in this moment, Jesus was eating of his own flesh. And... and that's actually kind of a really, um, well, that's pretty gross, honestly, if you're going to break it down like that, okay? But I digress from that topic, and I keep going. One is you're also going to see that if you study through Joshua, Joshua did the exact same thing, which, if you don't understand this, Joshua is the same Hebrew name as Jesus, Yeshua, Okay, so Joshua's Hebrew name was Yeshua. Jesus' Hebrew name was Yeshua. We say Jesus because the New Testament was written in Greek. And so that Greek word is the Isos, which then translates into English as Jesus. Okay, so for all of you Bible scholars who like names and, and, and all that various stuff, that's kind of how we get the name Jesus. Um, understand the New Testament was not written in Hebrew. Okay, so for all of you who think that we need to go back to the Hebrew and that's God's holy language and that's the only thing that we need to speak and we need to call him Yeshua because that was his actual name. It was written in Greek and that was authored by God. God's the one who chose for it to be written in the Koine Greek. Not man, God did. And so understanding this, there is no problem with calling Jesus, Jesus. There's no problem with calling him Yeshua. It's a name that is given to him in which we translate into our common tongue, and it's the power behind the name, not exactly the name itself, okay? So understanding that is, oh man, there's so much that I could go into on that. But understanding that Joshua, Yeshua, Moses could not lead the people into the promised land. Yeshua was the only one who could lead them over the Jordan into Jericho and take claim to the promised land. Moses couldn't do it. And that's foreshadowed for us in understanding the new covenant that the law of Moses could not lead people into the promise of God. There was only one who could do it, and that was Yeshua. Yeshua, Jesus, he was the one who could bring people into the promise that God had given to us. All right? And so going on, you see a fulfillment of that as Joshua did it, where he sent two ahead of him to prepare. Jesus is doing the same thing. They said to him in verse 9, where will you have us prepare it? Meaning the Passover meal. 
He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher, um, says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare there. It's all ready. It's already been done. It's already been prepared for you. All you have to do is come into what the master of the house has already prepared. And I believe that there is a concept of the gospel right here. This Passover lamb is coming into Jerusalem to be slain, right? As a ransom for the sins of many. And he's talking about this, this room in which they would go to eat of this Passover. They would go to consume of that and partake of this Passover that's being done on their behalf. And the teacher says, there's this master of a house who has this room, upper room, already furnished. All you have to do is come into what's already been prepared. And that's the gospel. We come into what has already been accomplished and prepared on our behalf. When we believe in Christ and we believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we come into what God has already prepared It's all foreshadowed even in the Sabbath day. And I've talked about that at length in previous podcasts, so I'm not going to go into that one. But six days, God did everything that was needed for us to come into and have dominion over the life that God had created for us. But sin ruined it. So God says, spoke of another day later on, as Hebrews 4 talks about it, which Joshua couldn't give the people rest. Jesus is the one who did. And when we come into this day of salvation, which Jesus has prepared for us, everything has been accomplished. It was finished. All we do is come into what God has already prepared. And I wish I could talk more at length on that one, but I would encourage you just to understand that when we come into Christ, everything that we needed to, for a life of godliness has already been prepared in him. That's why Philippians 4.13 says that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Because he did it, I can do it. Don't ever sell yourself short in what you can accomplish through Christ. Ever. The devil will come and try to get you to doubt yourself and doubt Christ. But don't ever doubt what he can do through you. Because he has already given you everything you need for a life of godliness is what he what he tells us in, I think it's 2 Peter 1.3. Maybe it's 1 Peter 1.3. It's verse 3 in one of those two books. Go look at it. He goes on, he says in verse 13, And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Man, isn't it an awesome thing that when we do come into Christ and we have given our life to him and we have surrendered to it and we have denied ourselves and we put ourselves on that cross for the glory of God and we come into it that we find everything that we need. Everything we've been looking for, we find it just as God said it would in his word. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And that that is a beautiful statement. If you would just stop and just kind of think about this, that For 33 years now, Jesus has lived his life. And for the last three years, he's been in ministry. And he's been doing what the Father is wanting him to do with these 12 men. One of them even being a devil. And he's done everything that God's asked him to do. And he knows the entire time that there was going to come a day where he was going to have to be the sacrifice for mankind. And he says, I have earnestly desired 
to partake of this with you. Knowing what's coming. This was a joy for him. And it makes me think of Paul. When Paul you know, knows that he's going to go to Nero, he's going to go to Caesar, and he's going to give an account, and that's going to be the last account he gives of the gospel, that his life, he's going to die. It's been made, to him, made known to him by the Spirit and by Agabus the prophet who came up and said, the owner of this belt is going to die. Paul knows that he's going to go to Rome. He's going to testify to Caesar about the gospel, but he knows that it's going to be the last time that he's going to do so. He knows he's going to die. And when he's talking to them, I believe it's in Acts 20, when he's telling them about this and they're trying to urge him to say, please stay, please stay. And he's like, no, I need to go. I have to go. And I'm going to die, guys. I'm not going to see you again. They knelt down on the beach and they wept and they sang And it was just this time of just communion and fellowship, koinonia, that they had with one another. And it was a beautiful moment, even though they knew Paul was going to go die. And they would never see him again. And I kind of get this picture that even though Jesus knew that he was going to suffer and that his time had come, that he was going to depart and go be with the Father, but that first he was going to have to be beaten and mocked and scorned and whipped and thrown up on a cross and there and drowned in his own blood, he still earnestly desired to have this moment with his apostles. And that's a beautiful thing because I think oftentimes we look so much to the suffering we miss the beauty of the moment. Did, did you hear what I said? We, we look at the suffering of what's going on in our life or what we know is coming that we miss the beauty of the moment of what we have. Jesus didn't. He took it in. He's like, this is a beautiful moment and I don't want to miss it simply because I know what's coming. He says, for I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now that could be something you translate to being on the cross when he says it is finished and it's all accomplished. Or it's something later on. You know, I can make a case probably for for both of those. But he goes on, he says, and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. Real quick, I want to kind of um, hone in on that concept he says, look, here's this, this, um, this cup that I'm giving to you. It's going to be the same thing with the bread. Same exact thing. Okay? Here is this cup. And I want you to go and have equal portions among you all. Go divide this cup among yourselves. And then he's going to do the same thing with the bread. Here's this bread. Go and have equal portions among yourselves. Nobody gets a greater portion and a lesser portion. There is equality among you. And I believe that that's the blueprint for the body. You look at 2 Corinthians 8, he says, Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. There wasn't somebody who had a greater portion of the things of this earth than somebody else. There is equality among them. And so it is with partaking of Christ. There isn't somebody who has greater access to more of Christ than somebody else. We all have the same access. Now what you do with that might be different. Where you get the hundredfold, the sixtyfold, thirtyfold, all that. What you do with that access, that might be determining something else of how much you actually get of him. But we all have the same 
access to grace. We all have the same access to his power, the dunamis of heaven. We all have the same access unto unto Christ. The same promises that God gave to Christ to give to us. We all have the same access. Don't think that the George Muellers and that the Amy Carmichaels and that the C.T. Studs men and women who have gone before us don't think they had a greater portion than what you do. They had the same access. They just did more with it than you do because they surrendered to a greater degree. It goes on in verse 18. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and gave it to them saying... This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now that word for remembrance is anamnesis, and it means a recollection of events. It's a memorial. It's something in which you are going back and you are recalling what has been done for you in the past as a memorial. That's what the word translates to. Now for you, that might not be a... Uh, much of a hot topic. You might look at that and think, oh, well, that's how I've always looked at it. It's a memorial. Well, I can tell you there's people out there who don't look at it like that. And they think that it's a continuation. It's a doing it each and every time that you partake of communion. It's a reenacting of what was accomplished on that cross. It's not a memorial. It's not a recollection of what had been done. Some people believe, typically in the Catholic faith, that it is a continuation of it. That when you are taken of communion, you are repeating what he did on the cross. That's why they believe in the transubstantiation, that it's actually his body and actually his blood that enters into your body when you partake of it. Let me just tell you, I don't believe that. I believe that when we partake of it, it is a symbolic um, memorial of what has been accomplished not what needs to be accomplished again. And he goes on and he says, um, this is my body which is given for you. Again, um, as I've talked to some Catholics before, Jesus had not yet given his body. So to me, it's an obvious symbolic nature of what he's stating here because Jesus had yet to go on the cross, let alone the fact that he's partaking of this with them. So what did he do? Like take a chunk out of his arm and bite it? I mean, come on now. Jesus had yet to be crucified. He had yet to even give his body. They are partaking of the Passover, symbolic nature of what he was about to do. Thus, when we partake of it today, it's a symbolic nature of what he did. It's a memorial, a recollection. And so he goes on and he says, And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, goes into the end of Hebrews 13, when he says it's the eternal blood of the covenant. There will never be another covenant. There will never be another blood spilled for the sins of mankind. It is this and only this and there will never be another. The blood of the bulls and goats was a foreshadow to Christ. And when Christ came and shed his blood, there will never be. It was not a foreshadow to something other than that. This is it. Therefore, if you reject it, you won't have another chance. It is Christ and him crucified And that is all it will ever be. You do not get another blood atonement. There will never be another prophet who comes who is going to offer his blood for people. It is Jesus. He is the only way, the truth, and the life. And you do not come to the Father but through him.
I say this because there are people who, out there, who are out there who believe in something called the third wave movement in which scripture doesn't um, actually detail it. They don't talk about it. It's just the third wave of the Holy Spirit. Let me just tell you, that's a deception from the devil. There will not be a third wave movement. The way the Spirit moved in and through His church is the same way that the Spirit will move in and through His church until the end of time. There will not be a new pouring out of His Holy Spirit that's not transcribed in the Scriptures. That is a deception of the enemy. And I can tell you it is a movement that a lot of people have fallen victim to. And I could go in and I could list a bunch of names of teachers who you need to stay away from and how you need to you know, look at this and look at that and see how it's not a movement of the Holy Spirit, but people think that it is. Let me just tell you, there's a lot of deception out there and he's a great deceiver for a reason because he's good at what he does. If the word of God does not um, detail it, then you better make sure that you are very cautious around it, if not altogether rejecting it. Anyways, he goes on. Verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Which means it wasn't already obvious to them. It wasn't something which they all knew. Oh yeah, we know who he's talking about. Judas of Iscariot. Yep, the thief. He's sticking his hand in the money jar. We already knew all this. No, he would have probably put up a pretty good show. I'm going to just tell you, there's those people in the church even today. People who put up a pretty good show that it might not be obvious that they're actually an agent of Satan. A devil, as he calls him whenever he says that... um, you know, after he feeds the 5,000 and then they all leave him three days later or whatever the, the timeline is in John six sixty six, It talks about where it says that all, many of his disciples all left him, but there only remained 12. And he says, and are you going to leave too? And Peter says, you have the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? And he goes, yep. And yet one of you is a devil. Jesus knew from the beginning who was going to betray him. But they didn't know. They had no clue because he had a pretty good disguise. And as Jude talks about in Second Peter 2, there's going to be people among you who are going to have a pretty good disguise. And you might not see through them, but Jesus will. Therefore, if you are allowing Jesus to be your eyes and your ears and your hands, then you'll see it too. And the Word of God will make it clear because the Word of God reveals the intentions of the heart, as Hebrews chapter 4 says. And remember, at this point, what had Satan filled? It was his heart. A dispute also rose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So here we are again. They still have no clue what's going on. Jesus is saying, I'm about to suffer. Um, This is my body, which is being poured out, my blood, which is being poured out. I mean, what did you think that was meaning? He's talking about the Passover and this, this, you know, go back into Exodus 12 when the Passover was instituted. You would see the same similarities of what Jesus is talking about and, and all throughout that. But they didn't get it. They were still worried about who was going to be the greatest among them. I mean, how selfish is that? And he goes on, he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? 
But I'm among you as the one who serves. He says, in a worldly system, you're going to see the greatest among people as the one who gets served. As the one who reclines at table, everybody serves him and does everything that he wants them to do. That's considered the greatest. He says, and yet, I'm greater than you, but I'm here as an example as the one who serves. This is what Philippians 2 is all about when he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, that though he was equal to God, he made himself a servant. That though prior to being born in this life, there was equality with God, it was not something that mankind would be able to grasp. So what did he do? He emptied himself of that and he made himself a servant to mankind. That's our example. It's called humility. And if you're going to be the humblest among man on earth, then you will be considered the greatest among the heavenlies. Not the other way around. And so many people today are looking to be served rather than to find ways to serve and to give their life for the sake of others. He goes on, he says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. You know what proves brotherhood? Is when people stay with you in your trials, not in your in your stumblings and in your sin. We have messages for that in the Word that we need to to avoid that. We need to make sure that we actually steer clear of those who are walking in intentional sin. But when people are going through trials, specifically for the sake of God's will, man, we stick close. We stay close. We support them. Those are fellow brothers. Fellow soldiers, if you will, who are with us in the trenches, and that's what builds trust. When you have people who begin, you know, you have trials and they just kind of let you do your own thing. You have people who, when you share with them how you have burdens and you have struggles and you have pains of what you're going through, and they just kind of like, oh man, I'll pray for you. But then they don't do anything about it. That tears down trust. That shows that you can't count on them in the trenches.